Dear Father, thank you, Father, for the celebration of joy this weekend and for the cause that made it necessary. That is, Father, the faithfulness of our leaders. And thank you, Lord, for the work that has been done here over such a long period of time. In consideration to what others experience in other places, Lord, we have been so blessed, continuing to be so blessed. And in our modest size, our modest facilities, we can sometimes find our our thoughts turning to what we don't have and to what we wish we could have. And that's just human nature, Father. Perhaps it's a a godly desire as well at times to, to want to expand our reach. But in the meantime, Father, let us remember what faithfulness has been here and how much you have already done so that we would not be discouraged and uh, we could celebrate. And Father, one of the things that we're most encouraged by is the long-standing desire in this place for the Word of God to be declared properly, boldly, and uh, to hearts and, and to ears that eagerly receive it. And Lord, we want to continue that for as long as you give us the opportunity. And today is one more day on that path. And we ask, Lord, that our study today in the book of Ruth would edify us as only your word can. It would open our hearts to the truths of what you've done and are doing. And and in the majesty and the magnificence of your sovereignty as displayed in these things, I pray, Father, that we would be humble before you and acknowledge that sovereignty in our everyday lives so that we would follow you in greater obedience. For we know that pleases you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're still in... Chapter 1. It's been two weeks now into our book of Ruth. We've spent that two weeks studying exactly five verses in the book of Ruth. So at that pace, we will require nine months to finish this study. But have no fear. We're not going to need more than seven months tops. Just kidding. Seriously, our pace is going to pick up this morning. We've been spending time in the early part of this book establishing some basic things that we needed to know so that as we move through the rest of the book, we have that framework to work in and in the first five verses of the book what we've learned is that the story of Ruth first and foremost centers on a Jewish family a family living in the time of judges a family that has fled the nation their land their inheritance because of famine they have sought refuge in the land of their enemies in Moab and in over nine years of time the family has been reduced to just three women and then we learned as we looked at the symbols that are contained in these facts We learned that this story is more than just a story of this small family. This is also a picture of Jesus as our Redeemer. That story will obviously play out over the next four chapters. And as I would submit to you, it's also a story of how God deals with disobedient Israel through the events of the last days, into the ends of this age. These pictures are embedded in the story of Ruth. And so as we move through it, we're going to look at all of these aspects of the book. For now, though, it's time for us to return to the primary story, that is, of this family, and of what's left of it, living in the time of Judges. And we pick that up at verse 6. Reading verse 6, speaking here of Naomi, it says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you might find rest, each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? 
Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. You remember last week we noted that they have been in the land of Moab now nine years. They are now approaching the tenth year in Moab. And at this point, Naomi decides it's time that she leaves the land, that she returns to the land of her family in Judah. And as you can tell from the text, the thing that prompts this thought in her head, it's not the loss of her sons, it's not the loss of her husband. I mean, she's been bereaved of her husband now for quite some time. Now, in verse 6, we're told that she's heard something that's prompted this desire to go back. And what she heard was that there were good things happening back home in Judah. Specifically, the Lord had, quote, visited her people, and that, specifically, he was giving them food again. The famine was over. So the famine and drought have ended, and now it sounds like it's time to go back. But more importantly, the people here have recognized, the people of Israel have recognized, that the arrival of these better times is a result of the Lord's sovereign will. That's the meaning of the phrase, he has visited his people. Just as that time of devastation, of deprivation under the famine, was itself directed by God as judgment, as we noted out of Deuteronomy last time, so now is this blessing a result of God's direction or God's countenance toward the people. So they see the ebb and flow of these circumstances of life as a reflection of God's pleasure or displeasure in the people. So now, as a result of food returning, Naomi says, I need to go back to my own people. But now the question is what to do with your daughters-in-law. These are not Jewish women. They're Moabites, Gentiles. They don't have husbands anymore. There's a very tenuous connection in the family between her and them. And in the culture of this day, a woman, in the way it was done when you married, a woman left her father's home and she attached herself to the home of her new husband so in a sense these two Moabites women are no longer a part of their parents family they now belong to this family of Elimelech this new tribe of Judah and yet their husbands Mahon and and Chilion are gone even Elimelech now is gone so there's a question an open question in this family for where their allegiance will lie these women have remained at this point so far a part of Elimelech's household and they have the prospect then of receiving Elimelech's inheritance. But the future for a woman in the circumstances that each of these women face was very bleak in these days. Historically, these women would have had very little options, very few options for survival. They don't own any land on which to survive since Elimelech is not a Moabite, so he has no land in the land of Moab. Any land, any inheritance that he might have received within the tribe of Judah was back in Judah. And he abandoned that property. Now, he didn't abandon rights to it. But when you leave a property that is intended to produce in farming, if you leave it for 10 years, what do you think it's going to look like when you come back? So even if they did return to Elimelech's inheritance in the land of Judah, and assuming that it hadn't fallen into the hands of someone else and they were willing to relinquish it back to them, nevertheless, the overgrown land would have been unable to be farmed without a lot of effort. And these women, likely, or more than likely, lack the physical strength necessary to work the land or even perhaps the expertise to do so. What I'm pointing out is that even if you could legally find a route to prosperity for these women in practical terms, they have very little hope to find anything on their own in this world. They are destined, likely destined, to be beggars. Moreover, these women are unlikely to attract new husbands. 
which of course would have been one other way in which they could have worked themselves up out of their circumstances. They've all been given into marriage already once. Now they are widowed, so they have right under law to be remarried, but they're no longer as attractive to a prospective suitor as a woman who has never been married. To draw a very crude comparison, it's in the same way that someone might prefer a new car over a used car. And I'm not saying that's true. I'm saying that's the perspective. I knew I'd get in trouble for that. That's why I said it the way I did. You get what you pay for. You have a... Someone's offering me 35 cents, I hear, over here in the corner. Now, all of this, all of this cultural truth is particularly true for Naomi. Because she's the oldest of the women. At least her daughters-in-law were younger. If they separated from Naomi, if they returned to their homes, they had a decent chance of being accepted by another man one day. And that's Naomi's argument. She's saying, if you come with me, you will have few reasons for hope. Remember, we studied this at the outset of the book. The law prohibited the nation of Israel's sons from marrying Moabites. Up until the 10th generation, it was said they would be cursed. So there is a concern for the women here, for the younger women on Naomi's part, that if they follow, they're taking the path of least hope least opportunity and for all the the negative consequences of their situation they might as well choose the best possible option and for her she's giving them permission to separate and go their own way it's an act of mercy she's attempting to persuade her daughters-in-law to abandon her for their own best interests in verse 8 she blesses the women by asking that the Lord be as kind to them as they have been to their deceased Husbands, And so we can see that they were loved by Naomi. They had a good relationship. Furthermore, Naomi calls for the Lord to grant them rest from this trial and the uncertainty of widowhood. And, and resting in the house of a husband is her euphemism for remarriage. Resting from all of the trial that widowhood brings. So as Naomi suggests this plan, the ladies, you notice, they, they first embrace in tears over the prospect of seeing this what's, what's left of this pitiful little family be broken up further. The younger women declare here a solidarity with her. We're not going to abandon you. But Naomi doesn't want to hear it. She insists. What, what she's really doing here, it's a bit of a cultural thing here. For them to suggest, for her to suggest to them that they abandon her, which would have been culturally inappropriate, you know, to leave this dependent mother-in-law, to fall away from her in this way, they have to do what they do. It's, it's sort of like that moment at a table in a restaurant where you're trying to figure out who's going to pay the check. Everyone has to offer. But whoever really, really wants to do it will be the one who persists to the end. Everyone else sort of backs off. And it's a polite way of making clear that you tried. And that's kind of what I think is going on here in the culture. They are going to make the necessary cultural response to her offer. Oh, no, 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 no. We couldn't possibly abandon you. But she knows that's expected. So she presses the argument. She begins in what I sense is perhaps a little self-pity, but understandably so. See, she sarcastically asks, look, if it were possible for me to even be married now and get pregnant now and have two sons in my womb even now, if we could get to even that possibility, which is itself very remote, would you be willing to wait till they grow up and then be old enough to marry you? Would you wait that long to be married? And she's not going to bear any more children. She doesn't even expect to get remarried. And so she's trying to point out to them that the Lord has gone forth against her, as she says, so that who would want to have a part in that future? Why would you hitch your wagon to this train, knowing where it's headed? She's giving these young women permission to be selfishly minded under these circumstances. They would naturally feel obligated to stay with this mother-in-law, but she's giving them the chance to do what they would prefer. 
because they know that staying with her likely means they'd never get married. That's almost inevitably what it would have happened. So look what they say in response to her. They lift up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. Now here we see the, the first moment of distinction between these two daughters-in-law. Orpah, she decides to take advantage of the opportunity. She decides to agree with Naomi and abandon the sinking ship of the family of Elimelech. She kisses Naomi, and that's a final gesture of love, and she departs. She loved Naomi. I don't think we have to question that, but not enough to sacrifice her own desires. In a sense, Orpah valued marriage to a future husband more than she valued her relationship with Naomi. And when Naomi gave her a chance to choose which one of these two do you care more about, well, Orpah chose husband instead of Naomi. And her name, by the way, reflects her heart. Her name means stubborn or stiff-necked, which is to say her personal interest came before Naomi's. Then there's Ruth. Now, at the end of verse 14, we hear that Ruth clings to Naomi. The word cling can also mean cleave or join to. That word does not merely indicate she stays with Naomi. It's a very specific word. It means she's pledging herself to Naomi. It's covenantal language. Ruth has made a commitment here that she's going to spend the rest of her life in the household of Naomi, come what may. Even if it means she never marries. Naomi mattered more to Ruth than even the prospect of a husband or the opportunity to have children. She's not foregoing those things necessarily, but she's saying that if I have to choose between the two, my choice is to be committed to Naomi more than it is to be committed to my own instincts. Why do you think Ruth is making this connection? Why do you think she has this interest? Well, part of it goes back to the second story that we've been studying in earlier weeks of this book. We've already said that Naomi pictures the nation of Israel in this story. And we've said that what Ruth gained in her relationship to Naomi was access to the knowledge of the true living God, to the ability to understand things that would have been outside her reach as a Moabite living in the land. And when Naomi releases each of these women from their obligation and insists that they make the decisions of their heart, what happens next is a reflection of each woman's heart. You see in the case of Orpah a desire to go back to the earthly, to the, to the things of this world that she values so much, to the exclusion of what was available to her in the relationship that Naomi offered, the relationship into the nation of Israel. But, but Ruth, Ruth has exactly the opposite heart. Ruth is no less interested in marriage. She's a normal, healthy young woman. I'm assuming it was very much in her desire. But in contrast, or in comparison to the riches of what it is to know the living God, Jehovah, she finds her interest going with Naomi. And you can see that next in what Naomi says to Ruth, verse 15. Then she says, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. 
Naomi, in verse 15, actually hints at the reason why Orpah chose her path. We don't see Orpah's own testimony. She just disappeared. But Naomi says Orpah returned not just to her people and not just looking for a husband, but more specifically to her gods. Which would tell us that Naomi must have sensed that Orpah's allegiance to Moab went much deeper than merely finding a husband in the culture. She was drawn back to pagan worship. Elimelech's God, the God of Israel, has never made an impression upon Orpah's heart, or so it would seem. So when the going got tough with Naomi, well, there was nothing else holding Orpah to the family. There was no spiritual connection. But then there's Ruth. And when Naomi begs Ruth to leave, Ruth's response is to beg Naomi not to leave her behind. She pledges that whatever future Naomi has, it will be Ruth's future as well until she dies. In fact, she invites a curse from God should she fail to keep this commitment. She's entering into a covenant here. This is very classic covenantial language. To death, they will be bound. And Ruth's reason for this commitment to be among considered a part of Naomi's family is because she wants access to Naomi's people that is the Jewish people and to Naomi's God the God of Israel we're coming to understand here that Orpah isn't leaving simply because she wants a husband and neither is Ruth staying simply because she doesn't the husbands are really immaterial at this point the bigger concern is a matter of faith in their hearts Orpah finds nothing particularly attractive about the Israel of God, and she has no affinity for the God of Israel. Orpah's proof that you can take the girl out of pagan Moab, but you can't take pagan Moab out of the girl. Likewise, or in reverse to that, Ruth, it appears, has become a worshiper of Yahweh. She no doubt wants a husband, as I said, like any young woman would, but she has come to realize there's something much greater than being married. She wants to know and follow the true living God above all else. And could you imagine if you were in her circumstance and had the understanding that she has apparently come to, and if you were watching the one person in in your entire world who has any connection to that living God walking away without you, I mean, it's hard for us to even conceive of such a situation, but if you could imagine yourself in a place in which you are the only person who knows the truth of Christ, let's say, and, for that matter, you are without a Bible, for it would not have been possible for Ruth to have found any source for the truth of God in her arena. So, you're in the world, you know of a God who knows you by faith, and you have no connection to Him physically, you have no tangible connection. Wouldn't you be seeking for someone, something, that you could relate to that would help you in that relationship. That would be the natural thing you'd want. That's Ruth. More importantly than that even, Ruth realizes that maintaining her connection to Naomi is, by identity, her connection to God. In other words, being part of the nation of Israel is, in this day, having access to God, as Paul says elsewhere in the New Testament. Before Naomi came into her life, she didn't know Yahweh. Now she does. If Ruth is a follower of Yahweh, she has to remain close to those who are in relationship, in covenant with Yahweh. And so her love for God propels her to sacrifice her earthly desires in order to obtain heavenly things. I often wonder why Ruth wasn't included in chapter 11 of Hebrews, you know, the Hall of Faith, as we call it. She exemplifies the self-sacrificial love that faith requires. She, she passed on the opportunity for earthly reward in order to seek heavenly reward. If there is a reason why she wasn't included, it may just be because at the end of the story she actually receives the earthly thing that she was potentially sacrificing. So perhaps in the way the writer of Hebrews 11 ends by saying those who wish for these things did not receive them, right? She does, but she will also be rewarded, of course, in, in heaven. 
But anyway, based on her actions and her words, here's what we can safely conclude about Ruth. She was saved by her faith in the promises of the God of Israel. And by the same token, I think you can safely assume that Orpah had never turned that corner. You can remember each of these three women in this way. Naomi was the grieving widow. Orpah was the leaving widow. And Ruth was the cleaving widow in this story. Let's go back to the text, verse 18. When she, that is Naomi, saw that she, Ruth, was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi returned, and with her, Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So Naomi does relent. She allows Ruth, as you see, to accompany her, no doubt, I think, with a measure of relief. I mean, can you imagine? But she must have been glad to see that her insistence of Ruth's departure was met by equal insistence, greater insistence, that Ruth stay with her. She must have had great appreciation and encouragement that Ruth remained committed to her under these circumstances. Friends, this is, by the way, the biblical definition of love. Love is not an emotion. Love is a verb. Love is, according to the Bible, the one's, a one's willingness to sacrifice your own interest for the need of someone else's interest. Perhaps that's why Jesus' greater love has no man that he would lay down his life for his friends. That self-sacrificial act is a definition of love. And perhaps that's why the name Ruth actually means friendship. Because in what she does here, it is the definition, as Jesus calls it, the definition of friendship that is of laying your life down for another. And so Naomi and, and Ruth head back to Bethlehem. And as Naomi arrives, she's greeted by those who remember her family from years ago. They're astonished to see her. They must have assumed that the family of Elimelech was, was gone. I'm sure they must have heard some of the bad news of the family falling on hard times in Moab. And they must have assumed it was, it was all over for them. And as they greet her by name, she says, Well, don't call me by that name anymore. I want a new name. She says, I don't want to be called Naomi. Remember that word means pleasant as in pleasant Jewish wife, you could say. They say, and so she says instead, my new name is Mara, which means bitter. She's bitter. She's bitter about her circumstances. She's bitter about her misery and her loss. But more importantly, who's she bitter against? Well, she says, she's bitter against the Lord, for she knows he is the one that causes all things. But remember, friends, that why they're in this situation. We said last week that this family is suffering as a result of a chain of sin, not as a result of a cruel God. They, the story of, of what happened in their life began first with the sin of Israel in the time of Judges, disobeying the Lord, breaking His covenant. That prompted the Lord's response of judgment, as He does in that cycle of Judges that we all studied. And that judgment, which was famine in their day, brought as a result a decision by the Father to abandon the land and go seek refuge in the land of enemies. That's another sin on top of the sin. And then that sin was continued by the son's sinful decision to marry Moabite women, contrary to the law. So Naomi may be bitter toward the Lord, but it wasn't the Lord's fault. Naomi has spent nine years outside the land during a period of judgment, as we noted last time. And even then, the Lord has remained faithful. And that's why she's now back in her land. This is such an ironic 
moment. She has just returned from exile to a land that is now seeing the plentiful blessings of the Lord in harvest, and it's only now that she's harboring all this resentment against God for her situation. Naomi even adds here that she left full and she returned empty. Now we understand, of course, what she means. She's lost her husband, she's lost her sons-in-law, even one of her daughters now. But in reality, spiritually speaking, her situation is exactly the opposite, I would argue. She left in a famine. She's returning in a time of plenty. She left with three men who were intent on disobeying the Lord and leading the whole family into ruin in serving only their own self-interests. And she returns accompanied by a devoted follower of Yahweh who is faithful to her at her own loss. Which of those two sounds better? The truth is, in what Naomi can really point to, she's never had it better. In the things that really matter in life, she's never had a better situation. On the surface, things look great as she left. But deep down inside, that family was was on a path to destruction. As she comes back, she feels slighted by the Lord. The truth is, His grace is evident in this story. Her situation at the end of chapter 1 is a classic representation of how the child of God can be persecuted, deprived, and hated by the world, and yet, at the same time, be considered blessed by the Lord. If you measure your circumstances in earthly terms, worldly terms, then you will always, almost always, find somewhere in your life you can point to for a cause in bitterness. I mean, if you want to be upset at your circumstances, I doubt it's very hard if you look you know, enough to find it. Our Lord Himself has said, though, that those who follow Him are going to know things like rejection and persecution, just as He knew it before us. He says in Matthew 10.24, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor is a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebub, well, how much more will they malign the members of the household? So it's an expectation that we would run into difficult circumstances as a result merely of our association with Christ to say nothing of the consequences of our own sin. And Paul reminds us that our faith in Christ has made us enemies with the world, as it was from the beginning. In Galatians, he's using an allegory, and at one point in that allegory, in chapter 4, verse 28, he says, And you, brethren, are like Isaac, that is, a child of promise, but as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, speaking here about Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, and so it is now also. There's a basic, fundamental principle, spiritual principle that guides the way our life will uh, continue to its end. And that basic principle is having come into faith, having become a child of the promise, Paul says, by faith, we now set ourselves up for attack by the world that does not know the Lord. For it has always been that way, Paul says. You remember the very first example of that. Abel and Cain, the child of the promise versus the child of the flesh. That's what we have to understand if we're going to live with spiritual understanding, with eyes for eternity. You have to know that your happiness in this life is not a determiner of whether or not God is pleased with you. Because the Word of God has already disclosed that the life of a Christian will mirror to some extent the life of his Lord, of our Lord. And therefore, we should expect we're going to suffer at times at the hands of hateful men. We're going to see trial. We're going to see testing. And on top of all of that, if we don't walk in obedience to the Lord, we'll see consequences for our own sin. 
Therefore, you have to let your joy come, not from those things, but from knowing that you are assured of glory in a heavenly state yet to come, and you will have eternal reward in that time, based on your service to the Lord here. And no one can take any of that away. You will enjoy your inheritance in a glorified body. You'll never die again. You'll never suffer in the way you did here. And in light of that future, how can you dwell in your present suffering? It'd be one thing, I think, for us to wish for better things in this life. Who can argue against that? But it's another thing altogether to have your entire mindset dependent upon things going well here. You're setting yourself up for failure. Now, I don't want to slight Naomi's hardship. Clearly, Naomi has suffered a great deal in her life, and there's good reason for her to feel some misery as a result of that. But it's so ironic that she chooses this moment to declare herself outside the love of God, outside the grace of God. Paul says in Romans 8.18, he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What I love so much about 8.18 is that he doesn't disavow the fact that we will be suffering or that there won't be difficulties in the present time. But he puts it in the balance and he says, if I can take all the things that I'll have to suffer in, in the life that God puts in front of me on earth and I could set them on one side of this scale and if it were possible this side of heaven to understand all of the riches and the glory that God has reserved for those who love him and put that on the other side of the scale the scale would fall so hard like this my attention would be fully devoted to the right side I'd not even care to look at the left side any longer what's lacking in our understanding so often is this right side and I don't mean to suggest we can gain a full understanding that's not the expectation We merely have a trust, a confidence in the goodness of God and in the promises of God to know that he is more than capable of establishing for us an inheritance that will have the kind of weightiness Paul implies here. We can trust that. And so we can begin to push the scales this way in our own understanding, even before we see it. Naomi, she entered the land of Judah with her eyes down, so to speak, thinking of her circumstances, locked on her earthly situation. She didn't have her eyes up. She wasn't thinking about her heavenly position. Her situation was difficult, yes, but friends, there's a difference between mourning and bitterness. Naomi is bitter because she can't see past her circumstances. She needed to lift her eyes heavenward. She needed to consider what God was doing around her. That was the key. That's our challenge too. Look past the world, consider the one to come. This isn't a perspective, by the way, that you gain in a single sermon. You know, this isn't Vincent Van Peel. I can't write you a book this thin about the power of positive thinking and assume that with that in hand, you'll be fine and set to go. That, that is not biblical. The way you reach the point in your walk as a Christian where people can die in your family, economically you can have devastation in your life, sicknesses can enter into your life, trials of persecution can come your way. The way you can absorb those things and continue in the joy of the Lord does not come because you will yourself out of that mindset. It comes only as a consequence of spiritual maturity. Spend time in God's Word. Consider the examples of the saints who have gone before you. Consider the example of the Lord. Consider these things in the Word. And let that influence your thinking. And the more that it influences your thinking, the less you will care about the world that is passing away. The more you will be able to understand the nature of the things that are persecuting or giving you trial and keep them in their proper perspective. I'm not saying you won't be mourning, but you won't be bitter. There's a huge difference. Next time we turn to this chapter, we're going to look at it one last time through the verses I just covered. But now, considering Naomi and Ruth in the second story, as I call it. And you can already, I think, begin to see some of the pattern that we're going to return to. Naomi, as you know, the picture of Israel, how she leaves the land, how she returns to her land. 
and under the circumstances in which she returns. And then now a new character to consider, Ruth, the Gentile who has been attached to Israel, who has come and made themselves a part of a family of God, grafted in, as it were, and now is committed by covenant to remain within that fold. We'll talk about her as well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We have a time of prayer and and communion ahead of us to finish our service. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the reminder of our confidence and our joy in you and not in this world. I ask that you would give us eyes for eternity, spiritual insight, so that as we face things, we know that there there are circumstances that we dislike that are yet intended for good. And the good that they may propose for us, Father, may depend on how we respond. And so I ask, Lord, that you would um, give us a heart to do the right things under difficult circumstances. To mourn as mourning is needed, but not to, to, to turn that to bitterness, Father. To suffer as suffering is required, but not to be discouraged. To find joy even in our suffering, Father. What a, con- what a contrary idea, what... What a strange idea to the world we live in, Father. And yet if our Master has shown us that it is profitable, then we as His servants can follow suit. We ask, Father, You give us the the patience and the spiritual insight to see those moments in our own walk and to respond in the right way. And thank You, Father, for all the majesty, the magnificence and sovereignty of Your will demonstrated in the story of a of the book of Ruth, Father. For if you can orchestrate one family's life in this way over ten years, clearly, Father, you are at work in our everyday life. And I ask, Lord, you'd show us that as well so we can follow you clearly. Praying this in Jesus' name, Father. Amen.